All right, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Let's sing the hymns on the handout. Stanzas one, three, and six. It's really small up here. I don't know if you can see that. I'm sorry. I didn't think about putting stanzas up, and I don't like redrawing the lines. <laughs> Those lines take longer to draw than you think because they have to be perfect. So let's sing one, three, six. Now may I rest secure, my race completed. Abram's bosom be my bed, where I wait and lay my head, till to Christ my bridegroom wed. Thou art my robe, my dress, my glorious raiment. Who could ever grant in life, walking through this vale of strife, any greater soul's delight. Though now we sow in tears, we shall be blessed, reaping sheaves of joy most fair, while with humble reverence there kneel before the Lamb's high chair. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O Lord, absolve your people from their offenses that from the bonds of our sins, which by reason of our frailty we have brought upon ourselves, we may be delivered by your bountiful goodness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right. Let's take a look at the congregation at prayer. The verse for the week, John 3, 5. Let's speak this together. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. All right, there is so much to say here. Most assuredly, this is more trivia than anything else, but do you know what, what it literally says? Because it doesn't literally say most assuredly. That's just how we translate it. But you mean like before it was translated very verily? Okay, can you say that louder? It used to be verily, verily. Yes, verily, yay, verily, verily, if you're, if you're a good King James boy or girl. Yeah, verily, verily, sure. Uh, and where does verily, verily come from? Verily, verily is almost a better translation than most assuredly, even though they essentially mean the same thing, but verily, verily keeps the original language better because it's the same word, verily, verily, because what, what Jesus really says is, 
。阿门，阿门，阿门，阿门。I say to you, because amen means yes, yes, yes. It is so. This is the truth. Please may I have some more. Amen, amen. Assuredly, verily, verily, I say. And of course, who is I? Jesus, of course, of course, of course. Say to you, who is you? Well, let's. Okay.、Uh, yes, you're right. And that's my fault because they asked a bad question. Who is Jesus talking to when he says you? Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Yeah. Remember John three. All of that, John three sixteen, you know the one everybody knows that you see at the Chiefs game. This is all. That took a minute. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and baseball too, right? Right under your eyes, you know.、Uh, that Nicodemus. All all of this is in the dialogue to Nicodemus, who is one of the members of the council, who wants to be a disciple. But who is afraid because of his position? So he secretly comes to Jesus by night, and meets with him, and gets catechesis at nighttime in secret, which is kind of fun.、Uh, you know, if you're ever afraid of losing your job or something because you're a Christian and you want to have secret nighttime catechesis, let me know, because that sounds like quite a sleepover. So <laughs> Jesus says to Nicodemus, all of this. Of course, in terms of the dialogue on baptism, he says, "Hey, you need to be born again. This is what I, this is what I'm preaching." And Nicodemus says, "This doesn't make any sense. What do you want me to do? Crawl back up into my mother's womb and then crawl my way out again? How am I supposed to do that? I'm too big." And Jesus says, "You're on the council. You're one of the smartest guys, and you don't understand this. You don't even know this." Which is the same thing he says to the Pharisees. What's the matter with you? You don't know the the scriptures nor the power therein. Which is what one of my seminary professors always used to say. What's the matter with you, seminarians? I'll tell you. You don't know the scriptures or the powers therein. So he says to Nicodemus, unless one and what do we? What does he mean by one? Yes,、yeah, somebody. Somebody. I didn't look at this in the Greek, but there is a specific word that means a certain one, tini. And I'm fairly, my educated guess, not remembering and not having looked at it, is that that's probably what it is. So unless a certain one, in this case, generally some guy, some dude, some lass,、uh, is born of water and the Spirit. Now, obviously, you have the language of born of water. And of spirit. So, what is this talking about?、Baptism. Of course, yes. This is baptism. So, unless one is, and actually, what you can do is you can substitute this. You can substitute "born of water and the spirit" with "baptized," just for the sake of understanding. Don't you know mess around with the Bible, but.、Uh, Unless one is born of water and spirit, and why does it have to be water and spirit? This is actually really important. Why does it have to be water and spirit? And the reason I ask that is because we, even here in Mound City, which I would consider to be a little bit more Bible belty 
than the Midwest where I came from. Where I came from, you can't throw a rock without hitting some kind of Lutheran church. And there are Lutheran church bodies you didn't even know existed. Why? Because it's not just Germans, it's the Scandinavians. And you don't know anything about the Scandinavian Lutheran churches and all their tiny little bodies. But that's the Midwest. Here, this is a little more, at least in this upper northwest corner, this is pretty Bible belty. So why, what's the deal here? Well, baptism by spirit. Luther said, water is only water only. Yeah, water is just water. Yeah, but, but the point being, Jesus is already saying this. You have to be born of water and the spirit. But why not just spirit? Because you've got a body, right? Because if the spirit is spirit, can the spirit touch you? Think about it in terms of the old language. What did we used to call the Holy Spirit? Yeah, good for you. The Holy Ghost. And what can't you do with the ghost? You can't touch it. When's the last time you tried to touch Casper? Well, your hands just go right through. You can't touch a ghost. And uh, what about Jesus? Why, how does Jesus prove to the disciples that he's not a ghost, a phantasmos, a phantom? He, he eats. Why? Why is that the proof? Well, because if you're a ghost and you try to eat, the food just drops right through you. It's like, a car, you know, it's like the cartoon where the guy gets shot with the cannon and he's got the big old circle right through him and he drinks and the water just goes right out the hole. That's what happens to Jesus if he's a ghost. He can't eat fish. It just comes right out of him. But he does eat it because he's not a ghost. So you have to be touched by the Spirit, but the way that the Spirit touches you is by attaching himself to something physical, which in this particular instance is water. How are you born of the Spirit? Well, the Spirit has to touch you, but the Spirit does it through water. So your baptism can't be one of just water. If it's just water, it's just, I mean, it's like going to the kitchen sink and washing your hands. All right, I mean, you should do it, but in the long run for your salvation, washing your hands in the kitchen sink is not going to do you any good. Sorry, Mom. Okay. But you also, by the same account, can't only be born of the Spirit. Oh, that has to do with, we, we have some certain evangelicals, but in particular Pentecostals, who are very big on baptism in the Spirit. So the, the water part doesn't matter. What matters is that you get the Spirit. Hallelujah. And, and in that case, uh, how do you know that you have the Spirit? See, because, because if I were to ask you, how do you know that you have the Holy Spirit, what would you tell me? Where did Jesus tell you that? Where in this life? In your baptism. Yeah, how do you know you have the Spirit? Because I was baptized. But, but if you're not of that tradition and you're, say, more Pentecostal or, or whatever other kind of evangelical would believe in the Spirit baptism, what's your proof of the Spirit? Pentecostals for sure. Speaking in tongues. And, you know, depending on where you go, rolling around in the aisle and... That, all of that kind of stuff. So the baptism, the water, that doesn't matter. What matters is that I have the Spirit. 
well, I can say I have the Spirit too, but I have the Spirit because I was born of water and of Spirit. So you have to have both of them together. You can't have one just by itself. One, because it's ineffective. Bapt or water by on its own is ineffective. And the other, not because the Spirit's ineffective, but because he's the Holy Ghost. He can't touch you. And he needs to touch you. So, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is... Uh, I don't have time to say what I want to say about this, but that's okay because I'll, I'll tell the adults. Okay, so the, uh, all of this is tying into the parable that we heard one of these weeks, the parable of the wedding feast. Matthew and Luke record different parts of the wedding feast. My favorite is the one with the guy when, when less detail, I think this is Luke's account. Matthew's account ha, has, spends more time describing the people who reject the invitation. Luke's gospel spends more time describing who made it into the feast and what happened after. Luke is like Paul Harvey. And here's the rest of the story. Okay, So you make it into the kingdom and then the, the master looks at you and he says, or the guy, he looks at the guy and says, hey, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? Okay. And then what happens to him because he's not wearing a wedding garment? He's out. You don't get to come in here without a wedding garment. You must have the wedding garment. And in baptism, we put on Christ's righteousness. It's like a, like a coat. Baptism puts Jesus on on the outside, puts Jesus on you, and the Eucharist puts Jesus in you. Prepositions are important. Jesus is on you. Jesus is in you. When the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus. When he looks into you, he sees Jesus. That's how you're judged, by Jesus. Okay, let's say this again. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is baptism? Baptism is not just plain water, but it is the water included in God's command and combined with God's word. I would, uh, I would encourage you to think, always think about word as being capitalized. Uh, because when we talk about God's word, we're never just talking about the words you're all, you primarily have to understand the word as person, and the person, of course, is Jesus. So when we say that it's uh, the water that's included in the command and combined with the word, that is to say, combined with Jesus, that's one reason why I can say, who does the baptism? Do, does the pastor do the baptism? No, who does the baptism? Jesus, guess how many people I have baptized in my ministerial career? Zero. I've not baptized a soul. But Jesus has baptized many people in five years right here at our font through his office and by his working and by his Holy Spirit. Okay, That's really, 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 really important that you understand that. It's the same with the forgiveness of sins. Who forgives your sins? How many sins have I forgiven as an individual, as a dude up here? Zero. I have not forgiven anything. I mean, uh, uh, other than, apart from the obvious, okay? 
I've not absolved any sins because the man doesn't absolve. The Lord absolves. Okay, so God's word, capital W, because it's a person, not a thing. It's a proper noun. The spirit, then when we talk about the spirit and the spirit being inseparable, the spirit and the word are always together. You can't take the spirit and have him apart from the word. And in baptism, the spirit and the word and the water are all together and they all come to you. Why? Because the spirit is like glue. Okay? Funny because he's a ghost, right? But he's also kind of like glue. The spirit is like the glue that sticks Jesus, that is the word, into the means, the water. The Spirit does the work, but Jesus is in the water. And he is the glue that then sticks that combination of Jesus and water to you. So you're getting Jesus, but you're getting Jesus by the working of the Spirit. Who is the one who gives the gifts? The third article gifts. Think about the Nicene Creed. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit keeps the church alive. The wise, the wise men did the three gifts. Yes, why, the, the wise men did give three gifts. <laughs> well, that was my fault for asking a bad question. The, the Spirit gives the gifts of God, su sustains the life of the church, which means the sacramental gifts are the gifts the Spirit gives. And the gifts that the Spirit gives are the Word, Jesus, because you can't separate the Spirit from the Word. The Spirit's job is to give you Jesus, to point to Jesus, to show you Jesus, to talk about Jesus. And Jesus' job is just to be Jesus and to do the will of the Father and to help you do the will of the Father. Why? Because he says, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And he's your Father too. Okay, kids, you can go to Sunday school. Grown-ups, there's, there's more that I want to say here, in particular with this verse, okay? So... There, there's, there's two really big things, and I'll try and do this quickly because there's more that I want to talk about today. <laughs> Cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, then the question is for us, on account of this passage, why would we baptize babies? I want you to think about this. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus also says in John 3 uh, to Nicodemus, what is born of the flesh is flesh, what is born of the Spirit is spirit. So why baptize babies? What is in this passage that is so important that, that makes us want to baptize babies? To enter the kingdom of God. To enter the kingdom of God. So we say, well, why baptize babies? Because we want them to enter the kingdom of God. And you can, I can give sort of a pithy answer to you. Why do we baptize babies? Because Jesus loves babies and because we love babies. And if Jesus loves babies and we love babies, then why would we not want them to enter the kingdom of God? So we do what Jesus told us to do and what the church has told us to do and what the church has done, and we just do it. We say, oh, okay. That's, that's the thing about the faith. And God bless him. 
And, and if he listens to the podcast, this is a compliment to him. Sam, Samuel Nelson, you know, he sits back there with his wonderful wife, Bea, and their beautiful little girl, Hannah, with her little can opener teeth. <laughs> I love those. Uh, he gets, he's an, he's an engineer. I'm not an engineer. In fact, I am an artist because I was a, I was a music, you know, I was a performer. I was not a music theory guy. I was the performer. So music theory to me was like the math of the music world. And I just say, well, who cares? You know, Beethoven said, if you have to think too hard about the music, then it stops being music. I said, just let the music happen, baby. Don't, don't think about it. Just do it. Uh, just, just let it kind of work itself. And theology is kind of like that too. You reach a point in the faith where you just can't think about it. You, you, you just reach the point where you say, well, being analytical isn't really going to help me because I'm not going to understand it any better and it's not going to help my faith grow to be analytical. And Samuel and I have had many conversations because he is a very analytical man. And uh, my brother is an engineer too, so, you know. And, of course, my brother is a musician, but what is he? He's a theorist, <laughs> which is why he's the one that composes all the tunes when we write hymns together because I just couldn't be bothered. I just go, ah, whatever, you, eh, I don't care about the theory and all the math and the, comp I don't want to do that, I just want to play the music. Okay? So you reach a point where, yeah, it's good to think about stuff and it's good to ask questions and this, uh, I know this is something that, uh, dare I say, irritates Samuel and perhaps others who tend to be more analytical like Samuel. And again, I say this because I love Samuel and we all love him and he's a nice young man. But um, you, you do reach a certain point where you just can't, you can't think about it anymore. You just have to let it be what it is. And then you say, amen, well, what does Jesus say about children? He says he loves them. What does the church do? Well, the church has baptized babies. Okay, well, all right then, amen. I guess that's what we're, I guess we're baptizing babies. I mean, and then you, you start to say, well, what a blah, blah, blah. And, and, and after the point at which you say, well, you know, the church does it, Jesus does it, it's okay, we can just follow along and play by the church's rules. Once you hit that point, anything after that is just sort of meaningless. Well, then why sit around and worry about it? Jesus said it, the church has done it 2,000 years. Let's just keep doing it, okay? But, but here's where you start to think about it. Well, why would we do that? Well, Jesus loves babies. We love babies. We want them to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus wants them to enter the kingdom of God. So uh, what's the holdup? You know, have them be born of flesh and then baptize them and, uh, and there we go. Now, some people would say, you know, we want to, if it's that important, we should baptize them in utero, right? And I just think, I don't even, I don't even know how that works. Like, you know... Don't take things to an extreme. You have to be born for me to be able to hold you and put water on you. Okay. Bill, did you have something? Look, you want me to, I guess I could. Well, I'm, sure, I'm sure you had something. Do, do you want to? Your hand was up. Oh, it was up a couple minutes ago. Scratching my armpit. I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> Nancy? Well, I came from Southern Baptist. Oh, okay. Well, God bless you. I didn't know that. <laughs> and my sisters have taken their children not to be baptized in the church, uh -huh. but to be dedicated. Right, dedicated, yes. Is, this, is it similar to what 
baptism gives you? No, it's like promising that someday we will have this child baptized. It's like saying, all right, I'm, gonna, I'm promising that this child is going to belong to God. And when it's time for this child to belong to God, God has full access. That's kind of what dedication is. We're, we're going to say, this chi- yeah, we're going to make sure that this child belongs to God. And we're going to do everything that we can to ensure that this child will belong to God. But right now, the thing that's going to let that child belong to God, we just can't do. So it's sort of like the placeholder for the, for the real deal. I don't think yes! Hey, that's really good. I'm embarrassed I didn't even think of that. It is, it's like the save the date, kind of. Like, you get the save the date in the mail, and it, that doesn't change the fact that the wedding's going to happen. The wedding's going to happen, but the save the date is the thing to where you go, oh yeah, okay, now I'm going to make sure my calendar is set and everything's ready to go because, and then the invitation comes, you go, all right, hey, but I had the save the date, so I'm golden. That's kind of what the dedication is like. Yes? Yes, now you I knew, that I did know. Yeah. And um, my mother had a good friend that was a Lutheran. Uh-huh. And when I was born, this friend said, now listen, Doris, if you don't have that little girl baptized and she dies, she's going to hell. Yeah. And, of course, I, I don't know, but my, I think my mother was taken back. Yeah. I am so glad that Lutherans are so uh, confident in their faith that they can be the judges on the last day. <laughs> there, there is, in many, you know, as in many cases, there is some truth to a statement like that. But of course, why would you say that? Well, yeah. I mean... What's, what's it, what's it going to do? Is that, is that going to be the thing? If you, if you tell a Baptist, what's the matter with you, you damn idiot? You know, you're sending your kids to hell if you don't get a Baptist. You think a Baptist who is a real good, solid, firm Baptist is going to say, oh my goodness, you know what? You're right. Or do you think they're just probably going to be upset that you said that? Because I think it's probably going to be the latter, because that's not a very charitable way to interact with somebody, regardless of whether you agree with them or not. So, and the other thing is, of course, you're not the judge. Now, we do everything based on the promises of God. And if a child that was not baptized died, but was living in a Christian home and they were bringing that child to church, would we say, yeah, that child's in hell because of of not being baptized? Well, no. But by the other account, we also couldn't say with certainty that the child was with Christ. So in an, in an occasion like that, what, what at the very least does baptism afford is the degree of certainty to where you say, I know for certain because of baptism. But that doesn't mean that a child who has that faith from being in a Christian household and attending church and hearing the word preached and proclaimed is absolutely damned but you don't have the guarantee and you don't have the certainty. And then what do you say as a Christian? You say, well, Lord, have mercy. Lord loves babies and we love babies and Lord, have mercy on the babies. 
That's part of the problem with abortion, by the way. If you, re if you really stop to think about it. Yeah, but a baptized person doesn't guarantee salvation either. Pardon me? A baptized person isn't guaranteed salvation either. Yeah, baptism's not magic. So it's, it's not, and, and that's, the, that's the problem with Lutherans. And, and Catholics and Orthodox, you, know, you can always fall on an extreme. We never want to fall on an extreme. The one extreme is to say, yep, you're absolutely going to hell. Well, you died. Well, heh, sucks to be you. The other, the other side is to say, well, baptism uh, is going to magically be the silver bullet to uh, save you no matter what happens in your life. So you can be baptized and then you can live like a horrible, horrible sinner and you can practice witchcraft and you can renounce the faith and renounce the church and all that. Oh, but, but you were baptized. But that's not the, the way that it works either. I mean, we talk about this. Peter says, baptism now saves you. How? Well, because it washes away your sins and it brings you into the church. It's giving you a new life, but a new life has to be lived. If you don't live the new life, then the new life is just as dead as you were before you got that new life. So that's the, you want to take the middle way. It's not, we're, baptism's not the only thing we're given. We're given the body and blood too, but baptism's the thing that gets you in here and, and puts the brand on you and marks you and does all of that. So yes, you're, you're right. We don't, you know, you never want to be on an extreme. If you're on, a, on an extreme in the church, you're probably not the most correct. Bill. You weren't scratching your armpit this time. Anecdotally, my mother's family from Grim, my grandmother was kind of a Methodist Presbyterian and next door lady had come from Germany and mm -hmm. she'd been confirmed yeah. as a Lutheran in Germany and she and my grandmother would argue about baptism. Mm -hmm. The lady from Germany being pro-baptism, sure. my grandmother would wait until you're an adult and make that choice. Mm -hmm. It was very difficult to ever have the last word in my mother's family. But when I was born, the lady came over and told my grandmother, that baby's going to be baptized. So she got the last word that, that time, but it didn't ever happen very often. Anyway, yeah. there you go. Yeah. Um, all of this then leads me to point out something really important to you. Here's what it is. Now, this passage in particular is a really big passage that people point to to say exactly what a woman said in your story. Well, that baby wasn't baptized. Well, they're, they're in hell. And it's the same justification that is used by some erroneous Lutherans, in fact, the Wisconsin Synod has this as an official doctrinal statement, that even an infant who dies in utero because they weren't baptized are condemned. That's an official doctrinal statement. Now, the best that we can really say is... Um, like in, in your example, or I guess the example I made of your story, Lisa, the best that we can say is that we entrust them to the grace of God, e even the child that dies in utero. But the child that dies in utero in a Christian household who's coming to church, whose parents are receiving the Eucharist, I mean, at that point you say, sure, the child wasn't baptized, and sure, we maybe don't necessarily know exactly what's going to happen on the last day, but 
we sure have a lot of really good evidence just here on earth, combined with the fact that we know that our Lord is gracious and merciful, to say, ah, Lord, have mercy. And we pray for even those being among the blessed dead. Because if you read the newsletter article last month, we do pray for the dead. Listen really carefully to the prayers of the church. You'll hear it. And for all those who have departed in the faith. We did it last week. All saints, we pray for the dead. And uh, the church typically doesn't pray, you know, in, in the service like that for the dead that are what we would consider hopeless, okay? So when we get together and you have a baby that dies in church, we name that baby and we have that baby on the list for the commemoration of the saints. Well, they weren't baptized though. Yeah, you're right, they weren't baptized. But again, the question is, well, <sighs> sorry for the profanity here, but what the hell do you want from me? I mean, what mother wants me to take a little bit of holy water and go up and, you know, baptize the baby in utero, okay? Like, that's a little bit crass. What do you want me to do? The baby's in the womb. How do you baptize a baby that's in the womb? Be born of the flesh and then be born of the spirit. That's the, that's the order. But here's the really big thing, okay? So that's... That's sort of the justification is this text. But here's one really important thing that I think you probably have never thought about. This is a little bit of a hobby horse of mine. The kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. What do you think kingdom of God means? Heaven. Heaven. Good. I'm glad you said that. That's not correct. <laughs> No, and I'm not, I'm not telling you that you're an idiot or anything. I'm just saying that's not the correct... Well, I didn't say that. <laughs> well, I, I, knew, I knew somebody would say it, and here's why. Because that's how you think of it. When you, when you see the kingdom of God, you, your first thought is heaven. And then when you say nobody enters the kingdom of God without baptism, you think nobody gets into heaven. But that's not exactly what this means. And I've talked about this before, and here's where we start making connections. The third petition of the Lord's Prayer. Excuse me, the second petition. Thy kingdom come. And thy kingdom come. The kingdom of God is not just the, the land that God rules in and dwells in. It's Jesus. And what does baptism do? Bring, remember what Paul says to the Romans. As many of you, those who are baptized into Christ. Remember from the catechumenate or other times maybe in Bible class, the prepositions matter. I can be out or I can be in. I can be out or I can be in. But what, is, what am I if I have one foot outside and one foot inside? I'm in two motion, one way from one place to the other. I'm going, excuse me, into Christ. What does baptism do? Makes you joined to Christ. So the real thing is, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you can't be joined to Jesus. Now, of course, you can say being joined to Jesus is a really important thing for entering into paradise. 
but do we condemn any and everyone who was not baptized? What about the catechumen? I mean, listen, the stuff about kids not being baptized and babies in the womb not being baptized, I'm consistently surprised and amazed by the conversations that happen uh, within the church about this. Why? Well, because I'm a church historian, particularly the early church, as you know. And guess what? The church has already talked about all of this. So anybody who's trying to pick a fight just hasn't cracked a book. So, yeah, there are lots of cases. What about the catechumen? What about the pagan who wanted to become a Christian and, say, was going through the catechumenate? Typically, what we would do here is if you're an adult, we don't baptize you right away. For the same reason uh, that the evangelicals wouldn't baptize. Funnily enough, why? Because we believe in believer baptisms. If you didn't know that as a Lutheran, this might come as a little bit of a shock to you, but we actually believe and affirm believer baptisms. But the thing that is different about we, what we think about it than most of the evangelicals is we actually believe that a baby believes. So it's not inconsistent because we believe that a baby believes. So that's a believer baptism. But when it comes to an adult, an adult has less capacity to believe than a child does. So the church's question through history was never, do we baptize babies? That was always a given. We do. Their question was, do we baptize adults? Why? Because adults don't believe there are monsters under their bed. Okay? Here's a really fun story. Remember when I told you that Saoirse uh, told me that there were shadow men that came and tapped on her window? I, sometime this week, we got up in the morning and Carolyn said, I woke up in the middle of the night and I swear I heard tapping on the windows. I said, I didn't see anything, but, but there was some kind of tapping out there. I said, well, no, your daughter already told you that. <laughs> oh. Yeah, well, you know, the, sh the shadow men try to talk to me through the window and they tap on the glass. I said, oh, don't worry about it. Jesus is in your room. But his angels are here too, aren't they? Oh, yeah, of course. Well, we'll say a prayer before we go to bed for angels and for getting rid of shadow men, won't we? Oh, yeah, absolutely, anything you want. We'll pray for those guys to get away. And you know what? They will. Oh, okay, very good. Yeah. So um, the question is, do we baptize adults? Why? Because adults don't believe in monsters. Because adults uh, have less capacity to believe because they're so filled up, filled up with reason. Well, let me stop and think about that for a minute. So what happens to the catechumenate, the adult pagan who then becomes uh, a Christian and starts coming here, then they come to church here at Holy Trinity and they start attending the catechumenate and of course they're not baptized because we are waiting for the Easter vigil where, we, where, we, where I know after the catechumenate you're good to go. But then they're in a motorcycle accident because they didn't listen to their mother and they bought a motorcycle and they die. Well then do we say, oh, Tough luck. Well, you're in hell. <laughs> what kind of a church would do that? Okay, so, so there's always a normal, and, there's and there are always outliers, but hard cases make bad laws, so we don't make law based on the outlying cases. So this is the promise. I want you to be joined to me, but this is the way. There isn't another way to be joined to me like this. Baptism is the thing that's going to do it. And being joined to me, boy, that's going to be so good for you. So you should just go ahead and do it.
and make sure that you and all your children are joined to me too, okay? Any questions about any of this? That's kind of heavy stuff, but it's not actually what I want to spend all the time talking about. I have a question. Yes, ma'am. So the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, you think it's heaven, yeah. So thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom there is also... Jesus and his work and his, all that he is. That's why we're... Why? <clears throat> it doesn't make any sense if we're praying that it would come to us. Why, why do we want heaven to come to us? I don't want that. I want to go there. And I've had... So Jehovah Witnesses have come to my house... In the past, ah. they, they talk about um, the new earth, you know. You oh, sure. You believe in the new earth. Well, don't you pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You know, it's coming sure. to us. And so that's why I brought that up. Because oh, well, it comes to us in Jesus. Yeah. I mean, you come here and you're as close to heaven as you can possibly be. Why? Is it because you came here or is it because Jesus came here? Well, I mean... Oh, that's. <laughs> Didn't do good. Oh, that's fine. You'll, you know, they're kind of trained in that. Um, but here, yeah, I mean, and there is a new heaven and new earth. Obviously, what's heaven going to be like? Well, it's not going to be in the clouds. We don't live in the far side here, for folks. You know, welcome to heaven. Here's your harp. Welcome to hell. Here's your accordion. Uh, yeah. Um, it's paradise. And, and this is the really important thing. So you look at the Septuagint, and the Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament. And what is the word for garden? Paradise. Paradise is the word for the Garden of Eden. So then you think about, Jesus talks about paradise, and us going to paradise, and blessed paradise. And what is he talking about? Creation the way it was supposed to be. And even better. So that you're going to live like Adam and Eve in the new earth, in the garden. It's, it's a beautiful image, but it's not one we think about. Now, here's the, here's the thing, right? Even in the Bible, when you, when you see kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, so that, uh, and this is where if you don't know the languages, you're sort of hosed. Because like a Jehovah's Witness might talk something about, well, the, it says, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, and he's obviously talking about heaven, isn't he? And you say, yes. Why? Because he is talking about heaven, but your English is wrong. Because the Bible, it doesn't say, Jesus never says the kingdom of heaven is like. He says the kingdom of the heavens is like. And there's a difference in terminology between the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, which is Jesus himself, and in particular, all of the fruits of Jesus that come through his crucifixion. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, we say, oh yeah, it's going to happen, but we want all of that good stuff to come to us and to live with us and to dwell with us. But there's a difference between that and the kingdom of the heavens, which is paradise. But in the English, it never really makes it all the way through. Because the English translators say, well, we don't know what to do with plural of the heavens, even though in the beginning God created the heavens, plural, and the earth. Not God created heaven and earth, but God created the heavens, plural, and the earth. And then there is the kingdom of the heavens. 
And what happens in the heavens? Separating light from darkness. Well, what does the early church say that is? The fall of Satan and the angels. Casting the darkness out of the light. Okay? So all this, it's an important distinction to make between the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the heavens. Jesus says, I will not drink of the, this is really important. Jesus says, I will not uh, drink of the fruit of the vine with you again until I enter into God's kingdom. Well, of course, what does he drink on the cross? Fruit of the vine, people, that's what wine is. And then you say, well, wait a minute, but Jesus said he wasn't going to drink until he entered God's kingdom. Was Jesus wrong? No, you're just not smart. <laughs> because Jesus says, that's the whole point. Here's where, where God's kingdom is. Jesus on the cross. That's why divine service is so important because when you're coming here, the kingdom of God is coming to you. That is Jesus and everything that Jesus is and all of the things that he brings. All of the presents. Jesus is like Father Christmas. Hey. He comes into church with a big old bag over his shoulder. What do you, you want some forgiveness? There's forgiveness. He's like Oprah kind of. Forgiveness for you. Forgiveness for you. Body and blood for everybody. Come on in. That's what he wants. Come home. Hey, come home. There's plenty of supper for everybody. I want you to have it all. But that's the kingdom. And we pray that it would come to us. We know it's going to come. We know God's going to, you know, we know that Jesus is going to give its gifts. But what do we want? We want him here and we want him now. You know, what do we want? Jesus, when do we want him? Now! That's church. Does that help you? Okay. Yeah. Put that one in the barrel for the next time Jehovah's Witness come over. <laughs> oh, well, that's probably a good thing. <laughs> you know, here's the biggest problem with Jehovah's Witness. It's hard to have a conversation with them because they don't actually believe that Jesus is unbegotten. Jesus is what? They don't believe that Jesus is, is not created. So then when you read John, the Gospel of John, they, they don't actually understand it and they take it in a completely different way. Which is funny because Jehovah's Witnesses actually are kind of an early heresy. But the church doesn't talk about the heresy anymore. We just say, oh, well, that's just Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> there were whole councils about, you know, uh, the Nicene Creed was written because of the Jehovah's Witnesses. So, uh, you know, next time the Jehovah's Witness come over and say, so tell me, what do you think about this? Or the Athanasian Creed. Ooh, that'd be a good one. Bring it out and say, hey, what, do you, what do you think about this? And if they say, oh, I don't believe that, then they're not Christians. That's the big thing, okay? Because they don't actually believe in Jesus then. And then you say, ah, but then if you don't believe in Jesus, why does anything else that you have to say matter? Because you don't even know the Lord. We had Je Jehovah's Witness come to our house once when I was growing up. This is such a horrible story. I Don't be encouraged by this, okay? I'm telling it to you because it's funny, but it was kind of naughty. So the Jehovah's Witness came, and I, of course... I was in college, but I knew I was going to the seminary. So I thought, oh yeah, come on in. You guys want something to drink? Let's sit down and have a talk. And they just kind of left shell-shocked. <laughs> and they, they said, can we come back again? And I said, oh yeah, sure, come anytime you want. And uh, then they did come back. 
And it was not, it, it was the same two people. It was a young man and a young woman that came the first time, but then they came. It was the young man and a young woman, and then this really sort of firm-looking older woman. Like, they kind of were, and she walked up like this. <laughs> so I thought, well, I made it on some list. But you want to know when they came? They came on Christmas Day. They came, they knocked on the door on Christmas Day, and I opened and they said, hey, we're the Jehovah's Witness. Can we come back and talk? You invited us over again, didn't you? And I said, well, I'd love to talk, but now's not really a good time because we're celebrating the birthday of the Son of God right now. Do you want to come party with us? And they said, no. Because <laughs> they don't celebrate birthdays and they don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. See, it's pretty naughty. But they never came back after that. <laughs> be like Pastor Jurgenmiller. He says he would tell them, I'll listen to you, but then you've got to listen to me. And he says, now they've got a map of Maryville and they've got a red X over his house. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you don't want to challenge why hit the beat, right? Then it's no fun. I don't, even when I teach the catechumenate, I don't want pushovers. If nobody asks, Asks, if nobody asks questions or pushes back on stuff, then I get afraid because then I think everybody's just, you know, like it's a cult of personality. Oh, whatever pastor says, whatever pastor says. I don't want that. Push back. If you don't like something I say, press me on it. If I can't answer your pressing, I'm not really worth, my, I shouldn't be teaching at all. You know, that's the, that's the way it should be. If something doesn't sound quite right to you, ask about it. Don't roll over. Uh, so, you know, I would think if I was going to be a Jehovah's Witness and I knew there was somebody who was willing to talk and then we could actually have a back and forth, that would be fun for me. I wouldn't. But, you know, they don't really, they don't want that. Bill? No. Oh, uh, I, oh, uh, I, I, I see this. And then I, <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe. All right. Oh, Becky, yes. So this challenge of understanding the kingdom of God sure. as a person instead of a place. Well, not just, and not just the person either, but, but the, the fullness of Christ, and, and that includes the fullness of what he has done, which is atonement and all of the gifts that he, that he brings. But, but that all, would make that even more exceptionally challenging for the Jewish people. Yes. With their understanding of, Jesus, or the Messiah, having to be a ruler of an earthly kingdom. Yes, although even now, I mean, see, you have to give the Jews, are you talking modern Jews or the, those Jews? <coughs> well, there's a, dif there's a difference. It, it matters what you're, who you're talking about. Well, I mean, Jimmy and I were listening to, oh, what's the conservative guy that has his own? Ben Shapiro. Thank you. Oh, yeah, okay, Ben Shapiro. You know what I mean? We were listening to him Christian theologist about how there's no way that Jesus could be who he's supposed to be because it's all about ruling on earth. Yeah, okay. So and Jimmy like, that's part of the problem with the death of Jesus. That's that's why there is part of why there's that change from Palm Sunday to Good Friday. Because what do they call him on Palm Sunday? King. And what do they want the king to do? From? The Romans. Get rid of the heathen. If you don't read the Maccabees, you will never understand that. You want to hear something super cute? Kids, pay attention. 
We, if you were tuning in for daily matins, you realize that for maybe the last two months, all of the readings were from the Maccabees. What? That's apocrypha, except for the book we use for the readings is the book from the Magdeburg Cathedral, which was Luther's church and Bugenhagen's church. And the book we're using is Bugenhagen's book from Bugenhagen's cathedral. So we read the Maccabees. And then Saoirse said one morning this week, she said, we're not in the Maccabees anymore, are we? And I, and I said, no, now we're in the book of Ezekiel. And she said, are there as many wars in Ezekiel as there are in Maccabees? <laughs> and I said, no, there's just flaming wheels and chariots in heaven and bones that come back to life. And she said, hmm, okay. <laughs> Kids are the best, right? So, uh, yeah, that's part of the problem is then, well, then he disappoints because he's not there to kick the Romans out. And then he says he's going to destroy the temple. Who, who, does this guy, who does this guy think he is? That's not the kind of thing the Messiah does, except Jesus says again and again and again, my kingdom is not of this world. That's not what the Messiah is coming to do. And the Old Testament is all about pointing to the salvation that the, that the Messiah is going to bring. But, and you, and, but you look at the, the Exodus, which is always the big one, the Exodus. What, what's the deal with the Exodus? I was in slavery and now I'm free. What does Jesus do for you? Well, he doesn't set you free. Why? Because the Romans are still here. They're knocking on our door. Now they're coming to destroy the temple because you still have Uncle Sam breathing down your neck. You're not free. So Jesus failed. If you think that the Exodus has to happen exactly the way that it did there and that it isn't pointing to something that's even greater, such as, I don't know, being led out of bondage in, and slavery in death to life. This is why the harrowing of hell is such an important thing, because that's the actual exodus. What does Jesus talk about with Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration? Oh, okay. He talks about, in the Greek, his exodus, his exodus, his journey. It's all about the exodus, and what is he talk what's the point of telling Moses and Elijah about the exodus? Because the Old Testament the chief of the Old Testament prophets, or the law and the prophets, excuse me, Torah and then all the books of the prophets, the chiefs of those two sides of the Old Testament are right there getting from the horse's mouth, pardon that, himself, the exodus, what the exodus really is. And then they write these scriptures and everything is about the exodus. But it's not just here, like, oh, Jesus is going to set us free. Great. Well, he, he does. And he, leads you to, uh, and he leads you to the promised land. But it's not about territory and governors. Uh, so in this setting, you have, to be, you have to be gentle with Nicodemus. Look at how Jesus treats Nicodemus. If Jesus treats Nicodemus so charitably and generously, then we should too. You can never treat anybody differently than how Jesus already treats them. So... Nicodemus is treated very kindly by Jesus. Why? Because Jesus knows he doesn't really understand. But guess who else doesn't really understand? The disciples. Guess who else? The apostles don't really understand because when does it make sense? The cross. Nothing makes sense until the cross. Why does Jesus say, hey, this is the kingdom of God and I'll enter the kingdom of God with you when I drink some wine? And then he drinks wine on the cross. They think, oh, Jesus is going to come and he's going to be victorious and he's going to claim Israel and then we're all going to drink wine together and then he drinks wine on the cross. 
Because that's the kingdom. It's difficult to listen to the reading of Maccabees and not relate that to current events. I thought the same thing. I thought the same thing. I, I said it. I said it to Carolyn. I said after after Matins one morning. I said, "Man, the Lord really has kind of a sense of humor that these lectionary readings happen to fall at this particular time of the year, right now when all of this is going on, and all you're reading about is the wars that the Jewish people fought because people kept coming in to try to destroy them." And you're just reading about this in the Maccabees and going, good grief. Nothing's changed. Nothing, well, nothing has changed. But the thing is, they want Jesus to be like Judas Maccabeus. They want Jesus to be the hammer of the Jews. They want Jesus to be the guy who's going to go, hey, remember how Judas Maccabeus kicked out Antiochus Epiphanes? Remember how Mattathias came and slaughtered the Greeks on the altar of God? Remember all of that? What are you going to do, Jesus? The Romans are here. What are you going to do? Pontius Pilate defiled the Temple Mount by slaughtering a bunch of pigs. What are you going to do to Pontius Pilate, Jesus? And then he says, oh, I'm going to let him kill me. And you go, no, 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 no. That's not the way the Messiah is supposed to behave. And Jesus says, ah, the problem isn't how the Messiah behaves. The problem is how you think the Messiah is supposed to behave. And that is one really big reason why he gets into it with the Pharisees and the scribes, because they say, how can you be the Messiah? This isn't, one, you're going against Moses. And Jesus says, how can I be going against Moses? Everything Moses wrote down, I gave him to write down. And they say, that's blasphemy. You say you're God. And he says, yes, you were listening. <laughs> yes. The, the contradiction with the, with the Romans is that when the, uh, when the Jews can, can burn, or follow Jesus, then along came Paul, who was a Roman citizen. Yes, Paul was a Roman citizen. This is, you know, I don't want to, destroy any mythos here, but Saul of Tarsus already has the name Paul. Saul of Tarsus already has the name Paul because he's a Roman citizen. Paul is the Romanized version of Saul. But after his conversion, he leaves behind the name Saul because he says, that is my Pharisee name. So I'm going to use my other name now, and my other name is Paul. And now I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to use the Roman name and I'm going to claim my Roman citizenship and now I'm going to travel and do all this. Why? Because I'm preaching the gospel of Jesus. I'm a changed man. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend to be a Jew anymore. I'm just going to be a Christian. I'm not going to be a Pharisee anymore. I'm going to be a Christian. So I go from Saul to Paul. It's not exactly the same as what happens to Abraham or what happens to Abram when he becomes Abraham or what happens to the children of Hosea. Read the book of Hosea. Of all of the minor prophets, I think Hosea is one of my all-time favorites. And, and in this, in this uh, dialogue here, and about what the Messiah is, what he's going to do, joining yourself to the Messiah is joining yourself to God, destroying the temple. Why? Because God doesn't live in the temple anymore. He lives in the flesh of man. I mean, that's blasphemy, but it's how it was always meant to be. 
It's just a matter of how, how do you actually understand the scriptures? And Jesus says, well, I am the scriptures and here's what they mean. And they say, no, 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 we're the teachers of the scripture and we know best. And he said, I, I don't think you do. And, and I can show you that you don't know what you're talking about here. Let me forgive this guy his sins. How can you possibly do that? Only God can forgive his sins. You know, you're right. Only God can forgive sins. What was I thinking? How about this? Who, who can make him stand up and take up his mat and walk? Uh, surely only God can do that too, right? Well, hey, guy, get up and go home. And the guy gets up and go home and, and, and everyone says, what? He did a thing only God could do. And Jesus is going, yes. That's the point of all of this. What, what do you think I'm doing here, man? Hey, why do I do all these healings? Why do the apostles do all of their healings? This is midweek. We just talked about this in midweek. Why do the apostles do miracles? What's the point of it all? Uh, yes, how so? When they do a, what are they preaching? What do the apostles preach? Jesus Christ. Well, yeah, the gospel. We'll say the gospel. And what is the gospel? The salvation How does salvation happen through Christ? Christ crucified and raised. It's death and resurrection. That's the gospel. So they're preaching specifically the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And in very... You know, of, of, of a particular importance is, of course, the resurrection, because if he doesn't rise, then the death doesn't mean anything. And how is anybody going to believe you who wasn't an eyewitness, even though over 500 people, Jesus appeared to over 500 of the brethren, so already over 500 people have said, yeah, he appeared, we saw him, we talked to him. Think about Emmaus, his own uncle and cousin didn't recognize him, and then they did, and they ran and they told the apostles, hey, this is for real, the women are telling the truth, we just saw him. And the dead were raised when Jesus was, the tombs broke open and the dead came out, hey, look, there's Adam! We only read about him, but here he is. Well, hey, kids, I'm uh, just taking a couple days here before I uh, go home. So you have all these people that did see, but then you have the apostles that are preaching it. And where is the authority? Why believe the apostles? Why believe me, they say? Well, because I have the mantle of that same Jesus. I can heal. God, can, God is doing it. God does it through me. It's Jesus who still does it. And that's showing you the same thing that Jesus' miracles showed you, which were that Jesus is the Christ. And now in the case of the apostles, we're the people that Jesus laid hands on. So the authority of Christ lives still in us by virtue of the office. Why does the pastor dress funny? Well, because he's hiding, but why does he wear a stole? Because the stole's a yoke. It's a yoke of the office. I'm a beast of burden. And the stole is the thing that tells you it's not me, it's Jesus. I have to put on the mantle. And you see the mantle. And then you know, oh, when this guy comes over here, those are Jesus' hands. When his mouth opens, those are Jesus' words. When his ear listens to my confession, that's Jesus' ear. When his feet walk over to me, that's Jesus' feet. Jesus is here. It's the death and resurrection. It's the gospel. And this is the legitimacy of it. You can't deny that. Because he did the miracles. He rose from the dead. He was witnessed. And then you have all these other people that are doing the same thing. Look, he gave it to us and we can do it too. We're telling the truth. All right, we'll see you in church.